you join me in prayer? Holy Father, our hearts are heavy this morning. This world is always filled with evidence of sin and brokenness, but today we're watching something especially evil. We pray for the people in Ukraine and in the surrounding area as they courageously stand against um, a demented tyrant. Lord, we pray for neighboring states and for the rest of the world that uh, you might inundate leaders with the courage that we see displayed in Ukraine, that you would give wisdom and direction uh, to stand against egocentric aggression. Lord, I pray that you would destroy the morale among uh, that tyrant's own soldiers, that you would take away their willingness to carry out his ruthless orders. And that through all of this, Lord, you indeed would make your presence and name known. Our problems here seem less significant today in light of what's happening on the other side of the world. But yet, we have innumerable struggles and heartaches present in this room. I pray that you would lift our eyes, Lord, from the circumstances that press in upon us, that you would enable us to look upward, to look to you and to see only you, that our vision would be filled with your greatness and your majesty and your glory, that you would strengthen our minds, that you would still our hearts against the enemy, that you would make us passionate to be faithful to you in all things and ways. Teach us to rest in You, in Your strength, in Your promises. Father, we pray that You would display Your marvelous glory through us in this world. Use us as testimonies of Your greatness, that You might draw others unto Yourself. Our world seems to be battered and plundered by evil. Give us courage and resolve to magnify Your name always. Make the gospel to consume us. Beckon us to the lost around us. Lord, we pray that you would bless this church, that we might aspire to worship and serve you only. That you would grow us deep in our relationship and fellowship with you. We're so thankful that you are a personal God. Add to this church family, others who long to grow deep with us. Make us a mighty and glorious city to point wanderers to Jesus. Make us to be effective worshipers, truly honoring your name. Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that allow us to gather without fear in this place. Help us to understand how to encourage and protect one another. We pray today for your honor and your kingdom to advance through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Christianity has been under assault since its inception, since the birth of the church. God's people have been under assault throughout history, continually face challenges to God's true gospel. Creeds and confessions have enabled the church to continue to center on truth, to seek to keep it pure in our hearts and minds. They serve as summaries of our core beliefs of what the Scripture teaches us. We profess to be biblical people, people faithful to the Scripture. Statements of faith, articles of faith that churches ascribe to are designed to summarize what the Scripture reveals to us. As I said a few weeks ago, when someone wants to know what you believe, you can hand them a Bible. 
But it's a complicated, complex book. It takes much time to dive in uh, to it in order to understand it. So we have what we call articles of faith, statements of faith, that serve as a framework, that serve as a, a skeleton, if you will, that we hang upon it the flesh, the substance that comes out of Scripture. So articles of faith are derived from the Scripture. It's not enough just to believe what's true. If what we believe doesn't affect the way we live, then we are hypocrites. This is what the world accuses us of continually. That we say and ascribe one thing, say we believe one thing, but our actions often say to them something different. So churches not only have articles of faith, statements that summarize what we believe, but then we have church covenants that express what we do because of what we believe. Church covenant is just expressing the stipulations that go along with what we believe. Our church covenant summarizes our beliefs that lead to our actions. We've been unpacking these things in the last three or four weeks to better understand it, to understand what it really says and what it means. When we recite it together, and we'll do that in a few moments as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we will conclude that by saying our church covenant together, reminding ourselves, rehearsing among ourselves what our beliefs should cause us to do how we interact with one another, how we demonstrate our faith in this world. Today we look at the fourth and final section of our covenant together. And we could have gone to a lot of places in Scripture. I love this second chapter of Philippians because it weaves in for us a critical mass, if you will, a critical issue and matter for Christianity, the hinge upon which our faith really turns, and that is humility, the mind of Christ. Without that, well, we end up making it more about ourselves than we do about Him. Let me share with you what this last section of our covenant says. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, always ready for reconciliation, and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. Moreover, we moreover engage that when we leave the church, we will, if possible, unite with a like-minded church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant. There are six important affirmations in this section that we need to examine this morning. These affirmations hinge on the main idea of protecting one another, watching over one another. I know we live in a world that prides itself on its privacy. We don't need, don't want, don't desire anyone poking around where we haven't given them permission. That's the idea behind the Christian faith, is that we give each other permission to poke around in our lives, in our hearts, in our soul. So let's look at how we covenant to guard each other in the faith. The first affirmation we see here is that we watch over one another in brotherly love. What does it mean to watch over? It means to pay close attention, to pay close attention to each other, to one another. To be alert and active, to ensure nothing bad happens. Now, this is one thing, it's to run interference in case there's something bad coming this way, but it's also a means of protecting someone who seems to be intent on doing harm to themselves because they're making bad choices, wrong choices, unhealthy choices, unhelpful choices. 
to try to deter them from the path they're on. Humans are naturally independent and prideful. We hear it all the time, right? With a child, with children, little children, you hear the pushback. I can do it by myself. I can do it. Right? What about older children and teenagers? Leave me alone. Leave me alone. I don't need you. What about adults? I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I can handle this. What about older adults? <laughs> I went through this last summer and fall with my parents. I don't want to impose. You have a life. I don't want to bother you. A sure sign of maturity is realizing that we need help. Now, I get why we say the things we say. I get why we keep these things at an arm's length in some way. But receiving help is not evidence of failure or weakness. In church life, pride undermines our transparency with one another. We feel like it's a sin to admit that we struggle or that we have a weakness. There are a couple of reasons I think that this is true. One is our natural independence. We're kind of wired that way. We want to be the hero of our own story. And then secondly, we've all experienced unkind speech and actions, and this makes us want to avoid being vulnerable again. So what is brotherly love? This is true familial love. Maybe not agape love, or is it a combination of true, genuine affection that is agape love? You remember Jesus' instructions to His disciples? It seems like we always come back to that, don't we? John chapter 13, after He has washed their feet, humbled Himself before them in a remarkable fashion, and He tells them, I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love one another. He qualifies that love by saying, as I love you. Now, all we have to do to understand what that means for us, what the challenge is for us, is to examine how Jesus loved, which climaxes on the cross with His death. He said Himself that there's no greater love than when a friend lay down his life for his friends. I also think about other opportunities. Peter, Peter is one of our favorite characters because we see so much of ourselves in him, right? The impulsiveness, the weakness that comes rushing out. He's, he's heroic. He's a larger-than-life figure in many ways. And then we see him absolutely just lose it, right? And we can relate. He wants to do what's right, but... Often he can't. Jesus' love was unconditional. He chose these men to follow him who were plain men. They were unimpressive by the world's standards. And yet his love was patient and kind. When they argued among themselves or when they didn't understand what he'd been teaching them over and over and over. And he continued to love them. His love was limitless. He reached across racial divide. He reached across to Samaritans, to women. I know we don't think much about that maybe in our culture today, but in that era, in that time, that was just something that a rabbi would not have done. He loved Pharisees, the ones who despised him and wanted him dead. He loved the self-righteous. He was clearly from God, supernatural, yet He washed their feet. And I think about Peter, that night, that horrible night when Jesus was arrested. After having been warned by Jesus what was coming, 
And yet he denied Christ. Not once, not twice, three times. In a matter of moments. Not in the face of those who might take his life, but in the conversation with a common slave servant girl. He was quaking in his boots. Peter was devastated by his lack of faithfulness. It was embarrassing. It shattered his heart. I can't imagine in the hours that followed after that as Jesus was crucified and laid in a tomb what must have been going through Peter's mind. We know that it drove even lost, sinful Judas to such despair that he took his own life. Peter, who claimed to, li- to love him and to be willing to die for him, to have denied Christ and then to watch him crucified, and those to be what he thought might be the final, the final actions, his final witness to his relationship with Christ. And then the resurrection occurred. The women came early, brought spices to anoint the body. The stone was already rolled away and an angel was sitting and waiting on them and said, Jesus is risen just like He said He would. And this is what Mark records. And Mark was a peer connected to Peter. Many believe that Mark took a lot of what he wrote maybe from his interactions with Peter. This is what he says that the angel said to the women, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And it was there that Jesus showed himself and that Peter was overwhelmed with the opportunity maybe to undo or to have another do, another go at what had happened. And Jesus there walking along the shore affirmed Peter, affirmed the forgiveness in Peter. Peter, you love me. I know you love me. I'm not doubting that. Yes, you stumbled and failed, but go feed my sheep. Brotherly love. It's not like what the world offers. What you do for me, I can do for you. But unless you do for me, I won't do for you. In Romans chapter 12, we find a powerful description of Christian affection and love. If you want to turn there with me, please feel free. This is a great passage. We could have very well camped out here this morning. Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. It's Paul is unpacking this idea of what marks a true Christian. What's evidence of a true Christian? He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Listen, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own spirit. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and on he goes. The tone in these verses is extremely warm. It's comfortable. And it's like that afghan that you're going to crawl under this afternoon on your sofa. You know, the one that you've had for years and years and years that Grandma made for you. And it just feels all's right when you get under that afghan, right? Or into that favorite chair you've been sitting in for years and, you know, your wife wants to get rid of it. But it just sits so well. 
It's conformed to your body. In fact, right now, you can't wait till you can get home and crawl into that chair, right? Let's get lunch over with. It's a nice, rainy, cool day. I get to spend time under the afghan in my favorite chair. Or slip on those favorite house shoes. I didn't used to appreciate those things. I do now. That's what Paul is outlining here for the people of Christ. Their relationships with one another. It should be so comfortable. You feel so comfortable. Such an affinity for one another. Such affection for one another. Such a trust for one another. You can't wait to renew those acquaintances. To lean in to one another. But I can't do that, you say. There are just too many differences in our congregation. We have too many different life experiences, too many different interests, too many different ages. I need people who look like me, who think like me, who act like me. Since when are the commands of God doable in our own strength? Name one. We can't. Philippians 2, 3, he says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Romans 12, 10, he says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, this is impossible without humility. Honor's different from love or affection, isn't it? You can honor someone without having affection for them. Paul's not advocating that you choose between them. He says do both. Love one another with brotherly affection. Stop. Outdo one another in showing honor. Stop. Honor people better than they deserve. There really is no place for condescension toward one another in the body of Christ. It's extremely difficult, even impossible given our culture. You see, we're taught from the time we come into this world, what? You are so special. This world would not, could not get along without you. We're raised believing we should be honored, be the center of attention, Again, we cannot do this in our own strength, but as the Spirit empowers us. 1 Timothy 6.1 says slaves are to honor their masters. It doesn't say good masters. The implication is masters who are scoundrels. 1 Corinthians 12.23 says those in the body of Christ should, should take those who are weaker and heap more honor on them outdo one another what does this mean prefer to honor rather than to be honored prefer to honor rather than to be honored it means that you love to honor more than you love to be honored you enjoy elevating others to honor more than you enjoy being elevated don't seek your own honor but seek to honor others put to death the craving for honor Cultivate a love for honoring others. And beware of honoring only one sort or kind of person. Those that look or act or speak or think as you do. Why is it important? Why is this such a big deal? First of all, I would say to you, God commands us to have brotherly love for one another. It's clearly a command. We are His family. We should be a glorious demonstration of a family. Such familial affection displays Christ's image to the world, to all creation. Love and honoring each other strengthens and confirms the faith that is in us. This honors Christ because we cannot do it in our own power. You're not able. 
And this encourages the world to look to Christ, to see the difference in us. It's like a salt block to cattle grazing. It drives them to water. So we should look after one another in brotherly love. Secondly, we pray with and for one another faithfully. What's the key to effective prayer life? What's the key to effective prayer life? What's the key to effective praying? Humility. Humility, again, it's at the center. Why is this true? Because self-sufficiency and self-confidence is what keeps us from praying. I don't need any help. I don't need that. I can handle this on my own. Our arrogance undermines our own prayer life. Often our view is so filled with self that we cannot see our own emptiness. Prayer becomes a religious rite. It becomes a ceremony. It becomes something habitual that we do because we know we're supposed to. Realizing our utter hopelessness and desperation changes how we pray. It changes how we pray. Why is it, do you think, that God so often takes the props out from under us? Why is it? Why is it that we have things like what's going on on the other side of the world happen? Why doesn't God just stop it? I think He's shaping us and He's molding us and He's drawing out of us those Christian virtues that He wants to see revealed in us. A devotion to prayer, an admission that God, we can't do anything to stop this. We don't have any answers. It doesn't make any sense to us. We can't crawl in the minds of a a dictator. We don't know how he thinks. We can't appreciate it. But God understands all these things, and we must lean into him. Prayer pushes us into God. We follow that acrostic in our prayers. We follow it in our liturgy. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Each and every one of them is an effort to exalt God and to humble ourselves, to come into contact with our own desperate need. Adoration lifts Him up high. We get the vision, as Isaiah did, of how God is high and lifted up, and we can't reach Him on our own. If He doesn't reach down for us, we are lost forever. Confession. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm continually needing to turn from self and turn to God. Thanksgiving. I have forgiveness. I have redemption. I have justification. He and He alone is steadfast and faithful. Supplication. Where we carry all our needs to Yahweh. He supplies everything. Always. And His ways are best. We talk a lot about prayer, but what is the true state of our prayer life? When you think about praying, what comes to mind first? What comes first? We usually think about physical needs, don't we? Sickness, health, all these kinds of things, provisions. We don't always think about spiritual well-being as being central to our needs. We don't think about the soul. We think about the things on the surface. We think about the things that, are, that can be seen, that are tangible. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for those things. We absolutely should. I think we're encouraged to do that. But I think we have to lean hard into the matters of the soul. What's taking place spiritually within us? What's going on in our relationship our fellowship with God what's going on in our relationship fellowship with other members of the body we are less likely to discuss our spiritual weaknesses and struggles why because I think this is where our pride is most evident 
We're not comfortable allowing others' entrance into our spiritual life. Right? I mean, let's just be honest with one another. Right? I'm just not comfortable there. You see, I have to learn that I can trust you to handle the sensitive things of my soul before I want to give you the key. Far too many of us have had experience where we've been bruised, we've been wounded, we've been broken by others who were careless, like a bull in a china shop knocking things around, and it's painful, and we just don't want to subject ourselves to that. But the real body of Christ, the family of Christ, comes together and learns how to trust, to trust that I can bear my soul and allow you to see what's there, that you can more effectually and more faithfully pray and intercede for me. We work hard to keep this hidden from everyone, but our unwillingness to be vulnerable with each other weakens the body. It weakens our understanding and value of prayer. It weakens our koinonia, keeping us at an arm's length from one another. Distrust wins the day when we fail to share and guard each other's heart. You see, I have as much responsibility, if not more, to guard your soul as I do to guard my own. And if you see that being your calling and your charge, then you see how that trust begins to build and strengthen and galvanize. We should be guards over one another's souls. This is the next big step, I think, for our fellowship. I think we're getting there. But this is huge, right? It's huge. Thirdly, we care for one another's needs. When we begin to move past physical challenges and deal with our souls, we begin to earnestly pray for one another's spiritual needs. We begin to care for one another's true needs in a redeemed way. Not just just a meal or just something tangible or physical, but we'll get engaged in the stuff that's truly important. The stuff that really matters for all of eternity, not just for tomorrow or for improving life in this world now. As we grow in transparency regarding our souls, we'll protect one another's souls diligently, fiercely even, praying for one another's souls deeply and faithfully. We see one another as souls created and redeemed by God. This should change the way we view everything. Fourth, we nurture compassion and kindness toward one another. How often are you intentional in being compassionate and kind? We like to have fun. It's always good when we gather together and hear the laughter. This is a good thing. We like to have fun. One of the ways we practice having fun is swapping barbs, David, right? We do this. I don't, know why. I don't know why it's fun, do you? But it is. We all do it. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I'm saying that we should be careful with it. We should be careful. Not because the person you're exchanging the barbs, the sarcasm with can't handle it but you never know who's watching and listening they may not be privy to the context they may not know the relationship that you have they may see and hear something totally different sarcasm sometimes can just be about proving who has the sharpest wit who can get the most laughs sardonic remarks help us navigate adversity by deflecting or laughing it off, not being honest and genuine with one another. What happens very often is that we wound sensitive souls. We may catch someone where the heart is really tender and in need of something much more 
careful and considerate and kind than maybe what we are prone to do. Again, I'm not trying to suggest that such interactions are off limits. I'm simply saying that we should not be our normal patterns. I'm as guilty as anyone, but I want to do better. Kidding and joking around is good, I think, within reason. But I never want any of you to see me as uncaring or unkind toward your soul. Or to think that I'm so for anyone else, that I'm cavalier in any way. Have fun together. Laugh together. But make sure your jokes are not passive-aggressive shots at one another. Or at another person. Make sure they know you really love and care for them. Make sure others know you really love and care for them. Let us make compassion and kindness our priority. Fifth, we are slow to take offense and quick to reconcile. Again, humility is at the heart of the matter. Slow to take offense, ready to reconcile. When we desire to be honored, we are prone to be offended. Can I say that again? When we desire to be honored, we are most prone to be offended. When humility saturates our hearts and minds, we're slow to be offended. Check your humility meter. Think about how often you get offended. What offends you? How often do you get offended? How long do you stay offended? Do you ever consider if your words or actions offended someone else? Does it ever cross your mind? How sensitive are you to reconciliation? Most of the time, we know when things are not right between us and someone else. Are you quick to seek them out and make efforts to reconcile? How do you respond if someone reaches out to you seeking to reconcile? Nurturing offenses is destructive. It's easier to reconcile than not. In fact, it's best not to be offended at all. But when we are, we should be quick to reconcile. I'm not claiming that I never get offended. I get less offended today than I did 10 years ago. I get less, a lot less offended today than I did 20 years ago. Because I've come to realize that for the most part, it just doesn't matter, right? But I want to work hard to deal with it quickly when I feel these, these impulses to be offended. When this happens, I start preaching to myself. We've talked about that a lot, right? I start speaking into my own life. Here's what I say to myself usually. This is, where, this is the pattern I use. Is it rooted in my desire to be honored? Is it rooted, is my offense rooted in my desire to be honored? <laughs> if it is, I want to prayerfully pull that root up. That's a weed growing in my life that needs to be removed. I, I may have misinterpreted what was said or the intentions with which it was said. This is called giving the benefit of a doubt, right? Maybe I didn't hear what I thought I heard. And it's just as easy to assume that I heard it wrong than it is to assume I heard it right. Isn't it? I say to myself, this has not been my normal experience with this person. Something else may be at work in them. Something else may be going on in their lives. Maybe their heart is grieving or hurting right now. Maybe this was a call for help. So I will pray, I will seek another conversation to check on what's going on in their heart. Again, I'm not saying I always get these right. But this is what I aspire to discipline in my own spirit and life. Sixth, we are committed to assembling together regularly. Acts 2.42-47 that Luke preached on a few weeks ago, the early church displayed a pattern of doing life together. They were regular and faithful in it. 
In our culture today, regular has taken on a different meaning. I was preparing a paper a couple of years ago, and I did some research, and I learned something fascinating. People define regular attendance in church as three times in eight weeks. I mean, that's less than 40%. If you attend three times in eight weeks, they consider that regular. That was a poll that I looked at. I don't think God's going to define three and eight weeks as regular. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think He will. It's interesting. If you interviewed for a job, and let's say the employer says, you know what, we love your education, we love your experience, we love your maturity, you got the job, and he gives you the job, and, and then 90 days later you have a, a, a review, you know, you come back together for the 90-day update, and he looks at you and says, you know, I love what you do and still love your skills, love all this stuff that's going on, but I don't understand why you just show up two days out of five for work. What will he do with that? What's the boss going to say? Well, sorry, 40% of the business day is not regular. 40% of the business week is not regular. Not only does Acts 2, 42-47 imply something greater than minimal gathering, Hebrews 10, 23-25 speaks to this issue. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Churches are facing all kinds of challenges in today's world. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There's less and less interest in commitment to spiritual matters. Less and less people are attending church or seeing it as important. And since COVID, they seem to have a license to do that. For some people, they've changed churches during this time. For some people, they've changed methods of going to church, in their minds at least. They stay home and watch. Make no mistake, we've tried to be very clear in this, but watching a live stream is not going to church. Never has been, never will be. You may observe what's going on at church, but you're not fitting in to the body of Christ. You're not exercising the gifts that God's placed in you. You're not exhorting the other members of the body. You're not encouraging the other members of the body. You're not holding the other members accountable. You're not growing together. For some, they're just procrastinating. They're not sure what to do. A lot of confusion in our world today. Your elders are working very hard to connect with people, to have conversations with these people, to find out what they're thinking and why they're not coming back into the fold, so to speak. Some are very difficult to pin down. Some have decided they're just not coming back. Some are really unclear about church membership and the responsibilities that go with it. Some have no concept of what a church covenant is or all about which, again, speaks back to why we're doing this. Shouldn't have to, right? But we are. A church body ultimately gathers regularly. Here we have a Sunday morning Bible studies time scheduled. We have a worship service scheduled. We have a Wednesday night gathering for Bible studies, discipleship. We have Sunday evening community groups. This is a pretty modest schedule as things go in the world. As you think about the things that you commit to, this is a pretty modest schedule. Some might even call it a light schedule. When you're in Christ, there should be a desire, I think, to be with the family. Not just for Easter or Christmas or weddings or funerals. And listen, I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning. You're here on a cold, rainy day. You're committed, right? You understand that. You're the faithful. 
But we need to rehearse this. It is important. And when we have these conversations with other people, we need to stress that being a member of the church comes with responsibilities and duties. And being together is one of them. We should recognize the benefits of being active with the body. I can say this today here because this is God's instruction and because it's God's best for His people. And it's our responsibility to speak truth into each other's lives. Nine months after SEAL Team 6 took out the world's most wanted man, Osama bin Laden, they completed another dramatic and secret mission, rescuing Jessica Buchanan, an American aid worker, from the hands of Somali pirates. In response to her plight, two dozen SEALs parachuted into southern Somalia, killed all nine kidnappers, liberated Buchanan, as well as a second aid worker, all without any American casualties. Their heroic acts in the final moments of this remarkable rescue reveal something about the culture and character of Navy SEALs. Here's what Jessica had to say about that event. She wrote, At one point, this group of men who've risked their lives for me already asked me to lie on the ground. Because they were concerned that there might be more armed terrorists, and they made a circle around me, and then they laid down on top of me, one on top of the other, to protect me. In case there be any fire coming in. And we laid that way until the evac helicopters arrived. To the world, it was extraordinary. To the Navy SEALs, it was another day's work. It's what they do because it's who they've become. John wrote in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that He, that is Christ, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for one another, because of who we are in Christ. In Christ, we're to be different than this world. Not perfect yet, but we are not like this broken world. We love one another sacrificially because that's who we are in Christ. We should not be characterized by suspicion, by anger, covetousness, grudges, turmoil, hostilities, or coldness. We are slow to take offense, quick to reconcile. We hold others in higher regard than we do ourselves. We protect and care for one another, even taking bullets for one another. We display Christ's glory by our unity amid our diversity. This is possible only through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. His Spirit working in us makes this possible. Today we gather around His table to remind ourselves to honor and to celebrate His sacrifice that sets us free from the penalty of sin, that gives us power over the temptation to sin each and every day. And that gives us hope that one day He's coming again and ushering in a new creation, free from all brokenness and all sin. We remind ourselves that He guards and protects us as His children. Let us prepare our hearts to remember Christ, worship Christ, and to look forward to His return as we partake of His supper together. Shall we pray? Father, we look to you this morning, acknowledging in this broken world that uh, we still live in it, we still live in bodies of flesh that seem to lead us and pressure us, Lord, to live for ourselves. 
We ask this morning that you would search our hearts, that you would reveal sin that so easily attacks and holds sway over us. And that we again, Lord, might renew in our thoughts, in our hearts this morning, our reality that in Christ we are not subject to this body of flesh. We've been liberated. We have been set free. And with your Spirit in us, Lord, we are empowered to live, to be conformed to the image of Christ. The world might see us distinct, holy, separate people, reflecting your glory, your image. And that, Lord, they might be drawn to you because of what they see. As we prepare to come to the table this morning, to take these elements, to remind ourselves of the body and the blood of Christ that was shed to make our emancipation possible. Lord, that we do so, not only with hearts that are clear from sin, overt actions that we might take from day to day, but Lord, that we might do so as a unified body, the true body of Christ of which He is the head, in full koinonia fellowship today. And that, Lord, if there be anything between us and a brother or a sister, that today You would bring it to our heart, to our attention, and that we would be quick Lord, to reconcile. Not seeking to bring any kind of reproach upon your body. And may it be for your glory, for your exaltation, for the advance of your kingdom and of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.